If someone tells you they have a secret, first thing you want to do is, is find out what it is. It's frustrating not knowing. Matthew chapter 13 is one of the most important chapters of the Bible because in it, it, it are the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And as we will see, not everyone gets to know. Not everyone gets to know the secrets of the kingdom. I brought with me a, a padlock and, and some keys. And uh, I don't carry this many keys around on a daily basis. I carry three. My car, my house, and the church keys. But, but here on, on this key ring are, are uh, keys to the church, to the, to the house, to, to the car. But also one for this lock. And only one key opens this lock. If, if you, um, even if you go to, like, let's say, a hotel that gives you a, a key card thing, right? You've got to have the right one. You swipe it, it's got to be able to open it. Even if you have a clicker, it's got to be able to have the right code in it to work. But only one key unlocks this lock, and um, I believe it's this one. Yes? And, and there's one key that unlocks the door of the parables. We're, we're going to be looking at parables for several months as we look at Matthew chapter 13. Eight parables in all, not the only parables in the Bible, but all parables of the kingdom of God. But there is one key that unlocks these parables, and that key is the wisdom of God. That God's wisdom is needed so that we can know and do what he wants us to do. Matthew 13 verses 1 through 9 that we're going to look at today teaches us that those who hear Jesus' teaching need his wisdom to understand it. That we need Jesus' wisdom to understand his teaching. We need God's wisdom to get the point, to grasp the message, to, to comprehend what he meant. And, and in these nine verses today, we will see something about the teacher, Jesus Christ. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see something about his teaching in verses 3 through 8, and something about the expected response of those who are taught in verse 9. So let's look first at the teacher. The teacher is initiating and engaging the people. Chapter 13 begins on that day. It ties it to the immediate context of chapter 12. It was the very day that the blasphemous accusations against Jesus were leveled and the visit of Jesus' mother and brothers. It was known as the busy day because so much stuff happened on that day. Jesus, it tells us, went out of the house. He was in a house, he went outside. And what he did next was he sat by the sea. He sat by the seashore. Verse 2 tells us that large crowds came to him. A lot of people gathered around him, so he got in a boat. And when he was in that boat, he sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Now, Jesus sitting is significant. He was assuming the posture of a teacher sitting was the posture that a teacher would assume in those days and it was an invitation from Jesus to the people to come and learn from him 
In contrast, the crowd stood. In those days, that was a sign of honor and respect for the teacher and the scriptures. So here we have Jesus sitting, the people standing, Jesus declaring, and they responding, and Jesus is basically preaching and they're listening. Jesus initiated and engaged the crowds. Then, he come, then we come to his teaching. And by the way, his teaching was both mysterious and clear. It was mysterious to some and clear to others. Verse 3 tells us that he spoke many things to them in parables. Parables. He spoke many things. But the traditional location of, of Jesus speaking in this setting was a place, a little inlet called the Cove of the Parables. It was one mile southwest of Capernaum, halfway to the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. And in that place, the land slopes down towards the ocean, towards the, excuse me, towards the sea, uh, around the cove, creating a, a natural amphitheater, kind of a horseshoe-shaped place, with acoustics so good that Jesus' voice could be heard from where he was in the boat, uh, at least 100 meters to the people on the shore. Now, so beside the authority with which he spoke, which amazed the people, Jesus had a distinctive style of teaching that he used, and it was parables. The word parable comes from two words, one meaning to throw, and the other, uh, by the side of. It literally means to throw something by the side of something else in order to compare. Jesus uses something from everyday life and lays it down next to something uh, a spiritual truth and then compares the two he he is making comparisons as he's using parables and i want to give you several ways that uh, that some things that that describe parables what they are um the first thing i want to say about parables is that it was one of the ways jesus taught a lot of people will, will want to lead you to believe that everything jesus did was storytelling when that's not the case uh, one of the ways that Jesus taught. Not the only way, as some suggest, but a very engaging way that he often taught. Uh, when you go through the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, about one-third of his teaching is done in parables. Parables, one of the ways that Jesus taught, are stories from daily life to make a spiritual point, to teach a spiritual truth. It was a very common way of teaching in jewish culture um, many times it was a long analogy often in the form of a story sometimes a proverb but comparing something from nature or daily life with a spiritual truth and jesus as we will see used parables with both believers and unbelievers and some of his parables were brief maybe one or two sentences and, and that was it others were full-length stories like like um, the Good Samaritan or the, the um, prodigal son. And Jesus used things that they would connect to in, in their culture. He used things like farmers, farming, uh, sowing in a field like this parable of the sower. He used wedding customs and shepherds and sheep and banquets to make connections to daily life. If Jesus was speaking to us today, he wouldn't use those same illustrations, but things that would connect to us. 
His audiences were often simple and uneducated people. They were fishermen, farmers, villagers, and they could connect with what he was saying. And really everyone can connect with a story at some, at some level. Now Jesus used parables to teach divine truth. He didn't just say, I'm going to tell you a story with no point. It was a story with a point. And he was going to teach things. He wanted to teach things about salvation, about who God is, about the kingdom of God. Um, and, and the stories would present a powerful lesson if the person could get it and understand it about God and the will of God for their lives. And what he was really doing when he was telling parables is challenging his listeners. He was challenging them to search for the spiritual meaning, to grasp the spiritual meaning. And it is why that parables are often referred to as earthly stories with heavenly meanings. But many of his parables deal with the kingdom of God. All of the parables in Matthew 13 are dealing with the kingdom of God. Very important as we interpret these parables so that we get them right and not come up with some crazy teaching that, aren't, that isn't centered around the idea of the kingdom of God. Jesus used these parables to proclaim the actions of God in his own ministry and what he was doing. One other thing I want to mention about parables, there's a lot of things you could say about parables, but one last thing I want to say about parables is that they were a way to both reveal and hide truth. They, it would be hidden to those who rejected Jesus and cannot handle further revelation from him at this point, and it would reveal deeper truths to those who believed. So the same parable as, as this one was here could be to one group a very clear illustration and to another a frustrating puzzle sometimes they were frustrating to all of them and you notice that jesus would explain the parable in fact two of the eight in matthew 13 he explains but he only explains it to his disciples to the crowds it is left completely unexplained they either going to understand it or not now up to this point in his ministry, Jesus used a lot of, you know, graphic analogies, uh, like salt and light. And, and, and their meaning, though, was fairly clear in the context with which he was giving. But parables require more explanations. Parables are, are something that Jesus used to obscure the truth from unbelievers while making it clearer to his disciples. So his teaching in parables was both mysterious to some and clear to others. I mentioned there are eight parables in chapter 13. The sower, which we'll see today, and actually in, in uh, another week subsequently, uh, in terms of its interpretation, when Jesus explained it. Uh, the weeds, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of leaven, the parable of treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, the parable of the net, and the parable of the landowner, or the, excuse me, the householder. And these were all spoken at one time. How do we know that these were all spoken at one time? Well, verse 1 begins, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. A great crowd, a great crowd gathered, and then he spoke to them uh, many things in parables. Then you look over in verse 53 of chapter 13, and it says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. All of these were given in one sitting for Jesus, standing for the people. 
And, and the first parable that we're looking at today sets the tone for the rest. The first parable sets the tone for the other seven. And this parable begins with the words, Behold, I, I've, be, I've come to love this word because Matthew loves this word so much. Behold, it means to listen. It, it means to, um, to listen up and to pay attention. And he says, Behold, the sower went out to sow. So look, listen up. This is going to be important. And, and, and he talks about a sower sowing. He doesn't say a sower. He says the sower. The sower goes out to sow. And his audience would have been very familiar with, with farming techniques. Everyone either took care of their own fields and gardens or worked the fields of a landlord in those days. So everyone knew what he was talking about. And in verse 4, it tells us that as he says that as the sower sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Now, the focus of this first you know, tone-setting parable is really not on the sower, but on the soils, which has led some people to call this the parable of the soils. Uh, I call it the parable of the sower because in verse 18, so did Jesus. He said, uh, hear then the parable of the sower. Is what he called it, so I'm going to call it that as well. Now, there are four kinds of soil on which the seed fell, and it reflected the common experience of farmers back then. They did not... Now, if we plant something, let's say some of you might have been planting in your yard yesterday, and you're maybe planting, uh, I don't know, tomatoes or some other thing, and, and you're going to dig a little hole, and you're going to put a seed or two or three in, right? And, and you're going to cover it up. That's not the way they, they planted seeds. That's not the way they sowed seeds back then. They did not plant seed in a single place um, or, or, or even a long furrow uh, dug out, a long trench dug out. Uh, they practiced what, would, what is known as broadcast sowing. Broadcast sowing, scattering seeds in all directions as, by hand as they went through the fields. Just all over the place. Just all over. And they would walk up and down the stony paths that divided their fields and, and throw out the seed. Uh, when they were sowing wheat, for example, they would sow up to 20 pounds per acre to allow for wasted seeds because they knew that some of the seed was not going to go where it, it would, would need to go in order to grow right and bear a crop. So they figured that out already. They were allowing for the wasted seed. According to, to Jewish authority, uh, seed was also sown in another way using cattle. You would put a, a bag of, of seed or, or grain on the back of the animal and as it and you cut holes in it and as uh, in the, not in the animal, in the bag of, of seeds, you cut holes in the bag and as the, ca- as the, as the uh, cattle moved through the fields, their movements would scatter the seed more in a concentrated fashion um, and um, thickly scattering those seeds and one other thing they did that was different than the way we would do it they, they plowed the fields before and after sowing the seed was sown and to cover the seeds with soil they would plow afterwards and they usually let's say wheat it would be planted in one to three inches of soil and, and that could be less if the topsoil was shallow and you know what would happen with that but it was common for seeds to fall on hard paths surrounding the fields and birds would basically swoop down and 
and eat them. Verse 5 tells us that other seeds fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. Farming conditions in many areas of Israel were were rough and often there wasn't enough water, moisture, or soil with which to plant and, and grow and the terrain was often rocky and uneven with only a thin layer of soil covering over rocks and so seeds landing on that shallow ground would uh, germinate possibly but they could not put down roots to collect whatever moisture or water was present they just couldn't do it it wasn't possible over six he says so when the sun had risen they were scorched you know they were they were basically uh withered away they, they they had no root and so they they withered and 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 they were gone uh, the idea here it's really simple that sprouting seeds would would die quickly uh, in the hot sun james speaks of of this in james chapter 1 verse 11 the, the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the plant and its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed Verse 7, Jesus then says, well, others, other seeds fell among the thorns. Makes me have a flashback. I was a little kid. My my grandma and grandpa lived out in Joshua Tree out in the high desert. And uh, I don't know why I was doing this, but I was watering their cactus in in front of their picture window. And as I watered the cactus, I leaned forward too much into the cactus. My whole forehead had cactus thorns or whatever they're called. Uh, and it took a long time. They'd use tweezers to pull them all out. That was fun. That was great. Um, but, but here, the thorns came and choked them out. Uh, if you ever try to deal with bougainvillea plants or, or rose bushes, you, you know what it's like to work with thorns. Some of us have the scars to prove it. But tough, thorny weeds would take up all the water, all the space, kind of get their elbows on the table and take up the sunshine too and choke out that, that the good plants that were trying to grow. Verse 8, Jesus says, others fell on the good soil, literally the beautiful soil, and yielded a crop. Ah. Yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, sixty and thirty. Uh, varied degrees of 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 blessing from god Uh, the seed falls on the good soil it germinates it matures it yields a crop ranging from 100 to 60 to 30 times what was sown that signifies a good harvest blessed by god genesis 26 and verse 12 tells us that isaac planted crops in the land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the lord had blessed him this shows a blessing from God and, and 160 and 30, that's all a good crop. All of those are good crop. Now next, very briefly, in verse 9, we see a, a, a reference to those who are taught. A reference to the taught. And the response that Jesus called for as the result of his teaching was 
was going to be kind of shown in a very simple way when he says, he who has ears, let him hear. The idea is that those taught were either going to understand or misunderstand. And, And Jesus tells this parable with no explanation. Nothing. He just tells it. That's it. And, he's, and he goes on. And he gives this word of challenge at the end in verse 9. He who has ears... Now I'm going to make a wild guess here and say that every one of the people that he was speaking to had ears, physical ears. So I don't think he was speaking about physical ears. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now I bet you most of them could hear with the ears that they had. They heard what he said. They heard about the sower and the, the seed and the soils what happened to each one and they got that they got the story but there's something more that Jesus is getting at but he doesn't he doesn't tell them and and a lot of times I know what I want to do I want to rush to the to the explanation I heard a pastor recently not not one from grace a, a pastor recently used this this parable as a way totally out of context and here's one that is explained he used it totally out of context to to justify a certain kind of ministry model blew me away like it's right over there it's not that far away i mean in verse 9 ends and just over in verse 18 is the explanation you can get that for us it's not a puzzle but i want us to stay right here in verse 9 Uh, We'll get to the explanation, not today, but but someday. But but for now, I want us to stay right here. It's kind of hard for us to go, let's let's feel how it felt, because we we know the explanation. Some of you just read it, you know. Some of you have it memorized. But um, let's stay here for a moment, because let's let's look and see. The, The taught... Got no explanation. They, just a word of challenge at the end. If you have ears to hear, then hear. He's basically saying, listen. And, and he's, it's cryptic. His wrap-up is cryptic. And it's not the first time he did this. Chapter 11, verse 15. He says, he says the same thing. In a different context, but in, in chapter 11, verse 15, with the context of identifying Jesus with Elijah and the, 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 the messianic implications, the, the implications of what that meant for Jesus as the Messiah and that those with spiritually sensitive ears would get that, would make that connection, would recognize Jesus as the hope of Israel, would recognize him as the, 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 uh, the hope of the prophecy that was given. But it's a challenge to spiritual sensitivity to Jesus and the gospel. And he's going to repeat it again in chapter 13 and verse 43. He he does it again. He who has ears, let let him hear. He basically talks about the righteous shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And and he goes on and says, he who has ears, let him hear. It's right after he explains the parable of the weeds. But what he's saying here in verse 9 is, if you can understand it, then understand it. Have at it. Grasp it. And he's challenging them 
to dig for the spiritual meaning, to wrestle with the text, to figure out what he said. And and in in chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, we're going to see the reason why. But not today. We're going to see the reason why he did this. He's going to explain that. His disciples come and say, tell us why you're speaking to them in parables. And he's speaking to the crowds. Tell us why. He's going to tell us why. And and in in chapter 13, verses 18 through 23, uh, we're going to see his explanation of the parable of the sower to his disciples. And by the way, feel free to read ahead. It's an open book, okay? But most people, like I mentioned, jump right to the interpretation and miss what these verses are revealing. And there are some significant things that these verses reveal to us if we would, if we would wait for it and, and, and not run ahead. There are implications for us. And, and the first implication really has to do with Jesus as the teacher. Jesus as the authoritative teacher who is sitting and teaching. And it's this, that Jesus is all authoritative. He has all authority. And so we need to listen to him. Simple point, but one that many, many deny today. Jesus is all authoritative, and we need to listen to him. It's interesting that the distinction between those who have ears to hear and those who do not is central to understanding all of Matthew chapters 11, 12, and 13. You've got to be able to get it to get it. You've got to have ears to hear in order to hear. And the conflicts in chapters 11 and 12 that we have looked at, that were revealed, reveal the contrast between those who willfully choose to disbelieve in the face of overwhelming evidence, by the way, and those who humbly accepted the evidence and responded in faith and obedience to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, those who had ears to hear would not only have understood the parable, but would realize that the parable was talking about their willingness to hear. Those who did not have ears to hear would go on in denial about the parable's implications about their unwillingness to hear. They're going to be oblivious to it. God searches the hearts of all. It's a, it's a common uh, scriptural teaching. He, he knows the hearts of all. He knows everything. And he knows who is receptive or not to his word. But what the crowds were left to do here is grapple with what Jesus said and figure it out. And fail you to hear or acknowledge or respond favorably to what God had said results in judgment. There's a lot of people right now, even in the evangelical Christian community, especially some high-profile ones, that are denying things that the Bible says, denying things that Jesus says, twisting things that Jesus says. big book that came out this week doing that and and it's interesting that it's persuasive it's it's engaging it's some of it is true but there is just enough falsehood mixed in to ruin the whole batch and that is the nature of heresy if a jehovah's witness came to your door today you you'd 
kind of brace yourself and be ready to to engage the, with them with the gospel. If, a, if an unbeliever came up to you and asked you questions, you would, you'd know where you stood. But if someone under the guise of being a believer comes to you and says, here's what Jesus is really saying, and it doesn't jive with centuries of Christian understanding, you, gotta, you, 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 can, you can pretty much be assured that this, this new, this new uh, proposed truth is not true. Whether it's that there isn't really a hell or that you're going to have a second chance after you die or other things like that, which this new book is, is propounding. There's tons of, of writings like that. And we've, we've got to say this. Jesus is all authoritative and we're going to listen to him. And we're going to go back to him if we hear something that doesn't seem to jive with him. I was reading a commentary in preparation for this sermon and, I, and, and uh, it was from someone I really respect and as I read it I thought this just doesn't make any sense I wrote put question marks all over it going what they were denying that Jesus was saying what he said it's kind of like the basic rule uh, you know I don't know if it's a rule of law or whatever it is but it's ignorance of the law is not a defense right? if you're caught speeding let's say later on today and you say, well, officer, I didn't see the sign. The officer's going to say, well, I'm so sorry that you didn't see the sign. Maybe next time you will. You say, well, but the sign was covered up with a branch of a tree. Well, you should have known. You know, you should have known. Ignorance of the law doesn't let you off the hook. And uh, people who hear see Jesus as he truly is. People who have ears to hear know that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament hope and prophecy, that he has all authority, that we need to listen to him and submit rather than arguing with what he has to say. A lot of times we want to argue and say, it can't mean that. No, Jesus, it can't mean that. Oh, yes, it does. And that goes for what he says in, in all of his word. We are basically, when, when man's opinions and God's word collide, we are to reject man's opinions no matter how persuasive and accept God's verdict on life and death, heaven and hell, marriage and family and singleness and business and pleasure and everything else the Bible speaks. Jesus is all authoritative. We need to listen to him. There's something else that is an implication for us out of this this passage, these, these short nine verses, and it's, and it's this, that some things are hard to understand. And we need his wisdom even more in that case. Verse nine, it's the, the warning to, to the hearers and the readers that the parable needs careful interpretation. It's not up for grabs. Verses 18 through 23 spells it out, and we're gonna get there, but... But for now, let this be a reminder to us not to jump to conclusions about what God has made clear. And even about what he has not made clear. Especially about what he has not made clear. It's very easy for us to go, well, you know, it's a gray area, so I'm going to set up my own theology about this. If it's a gray area, then let it stay that way. And don't insist that everyone else accept that. Parables like all of Scripture should come with a warning label. Handle with care. I'll, I'll admit something to you. I have not been the biggest fan of parables over the years. 
Not because I don't like them per se, but because everyone seems to have a different take on the same one. And I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that when, when Jesus spoke the parables, he said, hey, look, I know that I meant one thing every time I said something, but now I mean 50. When I speak a parable, you know, it has 50 meanings. But that's kind of how they're, they're portrayed oftentimes. Well, I think it means this. Well, I think it means this. I think it means this. And well, whatever it means to you, you know. Uh, no, Jesus was getting that one thing uh, when he spoke this parable and all the other of the eight here. And, and we need to work hard at figuring out what that one thing is. And, and it's not arrogant to say, I'm going to work hard to do it. And, and I think, to the best of my, my knowledge, I think we, we've got it. You know, it, it's sort of like a math problem. You can look in the back of the book, at least for the odd-numbered questions. Or equations. Or I don't know. I, I, I looked in the back of the book too often when I was in school. So don't ask me about math. Um, but the idea here is that we need to engage in careful interpretation of these parables, or we're going to miss or twist something Jesus is saying or intending. That we need to be careful not to insert meaning into symbols that were not originally intended. The key question when interpreting the parable is this. What's the main thing Jesus is getting at? Don't try to allegorize every bit of the story or else you will come up with some weird theology. Every parable is meant to, to communicate pretty much one big idea and everything else in the parable serves that point so don't be looking for some mystical ideas in the periphery of the parables to understand the message of jesus in his parables you need to understand the setting of the story um, by the way an allegorical approach to the study of parables is, is what often leads people into inaccurate conclusions and shaky theology when they try to make every bit of it mean something but the eight parables in Matthew thir 13 represent the kingdom of heaven uh, and side issues are not to be forced into these passages parables may illustrate some point of theology but don't build your theology around parables don't build your theology from parables. They must be taken in the context of Scripture, and we must seek God's wisdom as we interpret them, as we do all of Scripture. And when we come to the book together, or with our households, or in private devotion, we submit ourselves to what it says. One last thing. One last thing. Um, sometimes it is merciful that things remain unexplained. Sometimes it's merciful that God doesn't explain the whole story to us. And there are plenty of things in life that even right now we're all grappling with that are not answered yet. They're, they're not explained. We're, we're searching, we're praying, we're trying to figure out the answer or the solution but we don't have it yet. It, it eludes us. It's not within our grasp. We find ourselves asking why a lot. Which is funny is why is what the, 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 the disciples went and asked Jesus next. Why do you speak to them in parables? How come you're doing this? We ask God this. Well, how come this is going on? 
in my life or in my family or in, in, in the community or whatever. But God knows what we can handle at any given moment. But think about this idea of the, of the parables. From the, for the remainder of his Galilean ministry, Jesus did not speak to the multitudes except in parables. Verse 34 of this chapter tells us. So Jesus, veiling the truth from unbelievers this way, shows both judgment and mercy. It's an act of judgment and an act of mercy. Judgment because it kept them in the darkness that they loved. That's what John 3, 19 tells us. They loved the darkness rather than the light. But also mercy. Uh, mercy because for all who reject Jesus, exposure to more truth will only increase their guilt before a holy God. So it is merciful that Jesus is hiding these things from those who reject him. Jesus leaves the parable unexplained to the crowd and, for now, to his disciples. Everyone was left to grapple with the words. The disciples alone would be given understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom. An unexplained parable is, to some, an impossible riddle. They can only guess at its meaning. And this is where Jesus leaves them. And here's what I see in it. I see in that an invitation from Jesus to seek him and to ask him what it meant. If they dared. Because those who hear Jesus' teaching need his wisdom to understand it. Only believers have Jesus' wisdom. Jesus will even say in this next passage, to you it has been given. To you it has been granted to know. To them it has not. As we close, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And the idea is that only through the Spirit of God can one understand spiritual truth. Paul begins this chapter and says, I came to you, brothers, not proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. It says this, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, in interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is able to not he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is what we're going to see as we study the parables in Matthew 13. The key to understanding these parables and making sense out of daily life as well is knowing Jesus, which means you are uh, saved by grace through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have said and what you have revealed. And we even thank you, Lord, for what you leave unexplained. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.